All right, I have a couple comments to make about last week's, the last lesson that I did before we took the two-week break, uh, and that is in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 17. This is Jesus' final discourse with the disciples, and uh, I, I want to look at uh, verse um, 8 first, John 17, verse 8. And Jesus, Jesus is acknowledging that uh, uh, in this in period of series of verses that God gave him the disciples, that God, he's asking God to glorify him the way he was before he came to this earth, um, and that he recognizes that everything that he has came from God, and that he has done God's will in every case. And so now verse 8 says, For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. And so Jesus now makes this point that it involves believing in faith as to what we have heard. Jesus is speaking here about faith. They believed me, uh, and he's raising this as an explicit point. And so Jesus taught this explicitly when he dealt with Martha just before raising Lazarus from the dead. And you remember that. As, as Martha said to Jesus, no, no, don't turn that stone. Don't open that stone. Uh, you know, he's been there for four days. His body surely is deteriorating. Don't do that. And Jesus said, Martha, Martha, believing is seeing. Not seeing is believing. It's not like you're from Missouri. Uh, it's it's when, we, when we are children of God, we believe before we see. We believe before we see. Um, and, and so believing is seeing. If you're looking for the citation for that, that's John 11, verse 40. But blind faith, and this is the point I wanted to make uh, as we start the lesson, blind faith is not true biblical faith at all. We don't believe blindly in God, all right? Uh, and God does not want us to believe blindly. The, the question really for us is, does true faith require reason? And knowledge. Does true faith in God require some level of reason and knowledge? Do we need reason to undergird our, our faith in order to present it to others? Because that's the principal call that we have, to present our beliefs to a world that does not believe. Uh, and so uh, on one level, the answer is no. You don't have to be a knowledgeable person. You don't have to have a deep theological understanding of God and, and Jesus in order to have faith. But on the other hand, you do need to have some undergirding of why God is who he is and why Jesus is who he is if you're going to present this faith that you have to others. So all doubt does not need to be uh, cleared away uh, in order to evangelize. All doubt does not. Uh, some doubt is certainly uh, understandable, but God obviously saves many people without them competently uh, resolving all their doubts. Some people re have some doubts throughout their entire life. On the other hand, knowledge does play an important role in your maturing faith uh, and in, in your ability to uh, evangelize. Knowledge. And that's what we do here. That's what this is about, so that you have, uh, you have faith in what you hear, and yet God restores that faith uh, undergirds that faith by giving you a biblical uh, framework so that you can see the reasonable aspect of what we're talking about. Now, 
we find the apostles giving an account of their own personal beliefs in the face of critical questioning. Uh, turn, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 3. I cite this often, but this is one of those spots that you, you need to see it again. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do that with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. What a powerful verse. Always be prepared. And people are going to see you. It's like our sister saw somebody in the vitamin store. Obviously, something about her attitude and her conduct, her demeanor, drew that woman to her. Always be prepared when people come to you and say something about you, uh, that you know what to say about Jesus. And that's, it's important to have some knowledge to undergird your, your faith. Um, and, and so in the context, that verse that I just gave you, in the context of, of John 17, means that a certain number of convictions concerning Jesus uh, must be thoroughly understood. Uh, and that's what he's saying there. In order to have, in order to evangelize, you need to have some understanding specifically about Jesus. And Jesus indicates this by saying, they know with certainty that I came from you. They know with certainty that I came from you. Now, that's the Holy Spirit that gives us that certainty, all right? We know that when we read this, we have a certainty that's inspired by the Holy Spirit. But we also know that we have studied Scripture and, and when we studied scripture, we saw that there were over 500 eyewitnesses that saw Jesus walk around after he was crucified, uh, when he was resurrected. So if there are 500 eyewitnesses, when all the apostles saw him, uh, when, all, uh, when all those other disciples and 500 people saw him, and Paul writes about this, well, then we have the assurance to say that there is secondary corroborating evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. And so he says here, Jesus says, they knew with certainty that I came from you. They know that everything you have given me comes from you. Here's another thing. Everything that Jesus gave to them, they knew that Jesus derived that power from the Father. Uh, and so before we commit our lives uh, to Jesus, we must conv be convinced that he is divine. Let's understand this. We are not committing our lives to a great prophet. We're not committing our lives to Abraham or Moses or Isaac or Jacob or one of the patriarchs. We are committing our lives to God himself, fully God in every possible way. And that's the reason that we have to give this message to the world, that Jesus is fully divine. That's why we commit our teachings to him. He, his teaching is true. What he said is true. What he did is true. It is all supported and corroborated by secondary evidence. And primarily when he died on the cross, he died specifically for you, for us. There was no other reason why he gave his life for that. And so th this faith is not a phantom. It's not blind faith. It is faith corroborated by the greatest evidence that we could possibly ask for. Uh, nor is it just for our personal faith uh, th that knowledge of this type is important. 
It's not just for your own personal faith. Uh, it is important for your motivation to evangelize to people because if you're going to speak to people, you need to be able to have an understanding of why you believe with what you do. All right? You just don't say to somebody, accept what I'm telling you is true. All right? You have to give them a support. And so that's why that verse in Peter is so important. Give them a reason to believe why you believe what we do, which is why I say to, to take notes, keep records of what we do, reflect, read the scripture, and God will give you that background. You'll have that. And I would say this to you, that, if, that when you want to step out in faith to speak to somebody, don't be fearful. The Holy Spirit will give you the words that you need to have. I have that assurance, okay? He'll do that. Um, and, and honestly, if you had said to me 20 years ago, would you be able to get up uh, and speak for 45 minutes about God? I would look at you and say, are you kidding me? Well, you could do it in court. Of course I could do it in court. Well, you could speak in front of 2,000 people in a con Of course I could do that. But could you get up and speak to 30 people in church? No, probably not. Why? Because I understood the difference between doing those things and speaking to the people of God. And I took it very seriously. But when I basically submitted my life to God and said, Lord, you do it, you give me the words, then what I find now is I open my mouth and the words flow out. Honestly, they just flow out. I'm almost as if I don't even recall saying some of the things that I, that I say. And it's funny because I, we go back periodically, we listen to the radio broadcast, and I'll hear things that I didn't really remember saying. <laughs> Truthfully. I'll hear things that, that I never recalled saying, and that's, that's the impetus of the Holy Spirit, and I believe the same thing will happen to you. Um, and so, but don't fall into the trap uh, of having stressed the importance of knowledge. Don't fall into the trap of stopping there as if being a Christian is merely a school. As Jesus said, having given the word, having had the word received, and having had the disciples coming to know certain things concerning himself, the Lord went on to talk about the most important factor, that is faith or belief. Faith is not a blind trust, but it is, but it is not only knowledge either. It is a commitment based upon the knowledge, having come to know who Jesus is. Faith is believing God as he is revealed in Jesus Christ and then acting upon it. This becomes the very uh, lodestone upon which we move forward with our relationship with God. And so now we come to today's lesson, which is John 17, verses 9 and 10. And so you can follow along as I read there. And Jesus says, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine and glory has come to me through them. That is John 17, verses 9 and 10. Uh, some unusual things here. The first thing Jesus says is, I am not praying for the world, but for my disciples. That may shock you, because I think a lot of people have this conception that Jesus is generally praying for everybody. He's not praying for everybody. He's not praying for everybody. Uh, because if the, if the world is sold out in blasphemy to evil, why would, the, why would God pray for those people who are sold out to evil? Uh, but for those people who have accepted Christ, that have come into the kingdom of God, have become the disciples of Christ, Jesus is praying for them. For those who have yet not become disciples but are on the way and searching, I believe Jesus is praying for them 
also. The only exception to this is found that I can find. Take a look at Luke 23. And this has got to really make you feel great to know that Jesus is praying for you right now. He's praying for you, interceding with you uh, in your problems, your issues. And this is now at at, uh, Calvary. Jesus is now uh, on the cross. He is about to expire, and and they are bartering for his clothes. Uh, His life is being poured out. And now in verse 34, Luke 23, verse 34, Jesus says the following. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Father, forgive them, they do not know what they are doing. Now, I submit to you that if Jesus did not make that prayer, that there's a very good chance that the wrath of God would have been poured out on that place in the world like there was no tomorrow. You may not have thought about that, but I believe that. I believe that, that the wrath of God, just the same way that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, I believe that had Jesus not made that prayer to the Father, that that, 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 that holy, sovereign God, seeing that, that evil perpetuated the way it was, and, and despising the very messenger of God, God himself, that the wrath of God would have poured out, but that Jesus intervened with that prayer. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. This is important to understand this. This is important to understand exactly how Jesus is praying for us and the protective powers that he is praying. So if Jesus prayed there for pagans, evil pagans, who were perpetuating evils at its worst, and you see God's answer in not destroying them, then you have an understanding of what the power of the prayer of Jesus, the intercessory prayer of Jesus is as it relates to your life. And that's what this section is about, is Jesus really comes to terms with how much he loves us and is concerned about us uh, even as he's leaving. And so you see this gap, this tremendous gap between this one moment when Jesus prays for the evildoers, and the rest of his life when he commits himself to pray really only for these disciples. And so he says here, I pray for them. And the them here is designating the disciples. Uh, And so he's not praying for the world at large. He's praying for those who have committed themselves to him. Now, the famous theologian Spurgeon, uh, when reflecting on this verse, says that Jesus pleads for his own people. And I think that's correct. Jesus is actually pleading and praying for us. Uh, And there is a reminder of the unique position in which we stand with Jesus as a a result of these verses. And one of those things that, that, that causes me to reflect on my own life is if I have Jesus praying for me because I am one of his, how can I lead a life of sin? Lord, you're praying for me. How can I lead a reckless life? How can I go in a wanton relationship and do what I want when you're praying for me? I mean, it's, it's as if we're blaspheming God in his holiness as he prays for us. And I submit that the, the reason that a lot of Christians lead these reckless lives is they haven't thought about this. They haven't thought about the fact that in heaven next to God is, is Jesus Christ, God himself, praying for them. They don't reflect on that. But when you reflect on that, it makes it so much clearer that you can't desecrate God. And that's what we do. 
That's what we do. You're called. You're saved forever in the hand of God. Nothing will take you away. And he continues to pray for you that you're safe, that evil doesn't come upon you. And he puts a hedge around you. And so uh, these verses tell us why Jesus prays for us as opposed to not praying for the world. And as we study this, there effectively are three reasons. First, uh, because we are the fathers. We are God's. Second, because all that the Father has is also all that Jesus has. And third, because Jesus says that by saving us, he is glorified in us. Now, we're going to unpack those, those three things. And so the first of these reasons is, as Jesus indicates, that uh, he prays for us is because we belong to God, the Father. Uh, and what does that mean? It means at the moment that you are saved, God's grace came into your life to allow you to recognize that you need a Savior, allowed you to raise your arms and say, Father, forgive me, save me, Lord Jesus. It was the grace of God poured into you that allowed you to do that. Don't ever go and think, oh, yeah, well, I was able to recognize my own depravity. No, you weren't. I mean, more and more as you study Christianity, you recognize that really you can take no solace in any part of your life as if you had control over it. All the gifts, all the talent, all of what you have amassed, all of the influences poured into you by God. All right? Poured into you by God. And some of us have had to get into our 70s and 80s in order to understand that. Because up to that point, we think, well, I was a hard worker. I was a smart guy. I really, I really knew how to apply myself. Let me tell you. Don't let me go back and repeat those lessons that my father or mother gave me early on that were painful for me at that time, but obviously instructed me that no, nothing, nothing, no talent, no gift that you have is not yours. It's because God gave it to you. All right? It's because God gave it to you. And so you are God's. He owns you, and as he's taken you and given you salvation, it's as if the hand of God takes you and closes like that around you. And nothing, no power, no principality, no evil can ever take you out of the hand of God, ever. That's what this is about. And so Jesus prays for us because he recognizes that we're God's. We're God's property. And so he prays for us to keep the evil away. And remember, Jesus is doing this because he's about to depart from this world. Here he was staying with the disciples, deflecting all of the evil, all of the hate. It all came to Jesus first, and he's deflecting it all. But now he's going to be leaving it. So he's praying, God, protect them in every possible way. And so we are valued there. We are valued because we belong to the Father. Um, and then, and then the second reason Jesus is praying for us is found in the second half of verse nine and the first half of verse 10, for they are yours. All I have is yours and all you have is mine. There you understand the equality of Jesus with God, the father. All right. Every time I laugh, when I hear people say, well, there's no such thing as the Trinity in the Bible. No, really? No, only about 10,000 times. Does the doctrine come up? It's not labeled Trinity, 
but in every possible way, you see the equality of Jesus with God. All you have is mine. All I have is yours. Equal, co-equal responsibility. All right? They share us jointly. It is though having said in the first instance, I have yours to God, he then acknowledges that they are also mine because everything that is the Father's is also the Son's. And so Jesus is making it clear that he is praying for us because of this joint relationship. Not just that God owns us, but that Jesus and God together have this joint relationship. Now there's a secondary level here on which we can consider this mutuality of interest. And that is because there's a mutual interest between the Father, the Son, and us. All together, tied together. This means something very important. It means that no matter how inconsequential you have an issue in your life or a concern in your life, that that concern is equally shared by God and Jesus Christ. How does that feel? How does that feel? You feel different right now than you felt when you came in here? That maybe there's some issue in your life that you're struggling with, that you're you're wrestling with, and you're trying to come to terms with, and yet now I've told you that that issue is shared jointly by Jesus and God. And so what does it mean? It means you don't have to worry. You don't have to obsess. You don't have to reflect on this 24 hours a day because you're in the hand of God. He loves you and cares for you. He's praying for you. Jesus is praying for you. Your concerns are their concerns. Wow. What a difference this is, as you understand the nature of faith and who Jesus is, what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. This is clear. Jesus is making it crystal clear. He's praying for you. He's concerned about you. And so what this means, it means that we can't get obsessed in all these issues these small issues because we think that God doesn't know it. He knows everything. He knows you're worried. He knows you're concerned. And when you give it up to him, he takes charge of your life, no matter how small those concerns are. And now Jesus gives a third reason uh, for his prayer in the last half of verse 10. He indicates here, and this is something that I really never understood until I studied this. He says, I pray for them because I am glorified in them. I never really understood how could Jesus, God himself, be glorified in us? Well, when I really unpack this and study this, uh, it becomes very clear. Uh, He is glorified in us because he saved us. But for Jesus Christ, none of us here would be saved. We would be lost forever, but it is because of the intercession of, of Jesus in saving us, that we will have eternal life with God. And because of that, that relationship glorifies Jesus. Everybody that sees you should see Jesus reflected in your life. You are glorifying him even before they know anything else because your life is as if it's a poster child of Jesus Christ. Secondly, Jesus Jesus is glorified by our trusting him in this life. Now, this is important. It relates back to what I said before about having these concerns that become obsessions. What God wants most in this world is to be believed and accepted and submitted to. That's what God wants most. Uh, He wants to be trusted. 
God wants to be trusted. And so the question for us as Christians, do we really trust God? Do you really trust God? Uh, And I would say, and this is one of the things you need to focus on, that if you find yourself incessantly worried and filled with anxiety, I'm not sure you really trust God. Now, the other thing that I would say on this is that we know that Christianity is a walk. And I always tell you about the difference between day one and day two. And some of us are on day two. Some of us are on day 100. Some of us are on day 1,000. Some of us are on day 10,000. But here's the point. As you walk with God in this walk of Christianity, you begin to understand more how he takes care of you. He gives evidence of that in so many ways. You see the testimonies that we have here uh, about that. The testimony of Jake uh, about how God saved him from death uh, on those ski slopes and, and, and allowed him to have an incredible life. You see how God loves us and intervenes with us. And so you trust him more when you see that. And so uh, we do not trust him if we worry. We do not trust him if we continually complain about the circumstances in our lives. Have you ever noticed that there are some people you almost hate asking, hey, hey, how are you doing? Oh, no, they're actually going to unload on me. Oh, I can't take it. I know you knew people like that. They're actually going to unload on you. But, you know, when you come across a real Christian and you say, hey, how are you doing? Even when that person's got issues, what do they say? I'm great. I'm great. I mean, there's so many people here that I know for a fact of what they're going through. And I ask them, hey, how are you? I'm great. I'm good. Thank God. Thank God. You see, that's the difference. I know, I trust he's going to take care of me. I have no concerns. Yes, I'm worried. I begin to worry, but I don't let the worry come from like a little dot and turn into a giant mushroom. It's not a sin to begin to worry. All right? It's like I said to the Monday class in in terms of lust. It's not a sin to have that instantaneous lustful thought. It's when that lustful thought mushrooms and becomes an obsession. You see? Because we're human, we are going to worry, all right? We're going to worry at some point, but, we don't, let, but when we don't let those worries become overriding anxieties in our life. We give it up to God because we have this trust. And so we cannot trust him, we do not trust him, if we complain about the circumstances of our lives. Uh, and so when you've fully submitted to Jesus, you have given evidence to him that you trust him. That's the evidence. You've given it over to him. Third, Jesus is glorified by his own people to the degree that we live a holy life. Holiness is the most important attribute that's evidenced in God in the Bible. Uh, And I know that some people say, well, love is is, uh, an important attribute, the most important. And I would say no. Uh, Obviously, love is evidenced by God. (laughs) Jesus Christ is the biggest evidence of that. But if you go from Genesis right through Revelation, the over writing attribute of God that you see the most is holiness, holiness. And I often said that we as Christians, evangelical Christians, do not really approach God with the holiness that he deserves. Some of the other denominations do it better than we do it, frankly. Uh, but we, do, we often do not. 
and so when you exhibit a holiness in your life, when you are walking with God in a sanctified life, that, that is evidence and glorifying Jesus Christ. Because let's face it, without Christ, without the Holy Spirit, you're just like everybody else in this world. You're no different. But through Jesus Christ, through grace, through the Holy Spirit, you're able now to walk uh, in a way that's circumspect, that's separate from the world, that is holy. And listen, I understand. Everybody here is saying, I'm not holy. And I'm the first guy to say I'm not holy. But here's the thing. God sees us as holy through the filtering lens of Jesus Christ. And that's the point of this. And we're concerned, we're convicted when we do something that's wrong, when we say a word, when we slander, when we gossip, and you know we're all into those kind of things. All of a sudden, we're convicted. We're convicted. And that's, that puts glory to Jesus because that evidence is the fact that we are different from the world and we're different because of Jesus Christ, because of God the Father, because of grace through his holiness in every way. We'll continue this next week. Let's close. Father, I thank you for the words that you've given us, for the lessons that you've given us today, Lord. Continue to let them resonate in our lives as we understand how great our Christ is, how he prays for us today next to the throne of God, interceding for us in every way. Let us be mindful of this. Let us reflect on this and help us, Father, to keep away from a life that degrades Jesus and our Father. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you.